You know, I'm going to give you a history lesson. We got some dumbass motherfuckers floating around this country. <laughs> Stop laughing. And when I do, start fucking. Also, y'all did some nasty ass jokes on my ass, too. Funny jokes and unfunny jokes come out of the same birth. You fucking guys are unbelievable. Why are you laughing? Evening, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Why You Laughing, a history of comedy podcast. And today, I am pleased to introduce to you the legendary Red Fox, uh, a guy I did not know a lot about and a guy I'm extremely interested in. I was actually excited to uh, record this episode today. It's one of those that, uh, you know, I hope you guys clicked on, even if you're not too familiar with his work. Um, cause I think he lived a, a very interesting life, uh, in many ways, uh, a, a tragic life. It's a, a bit of a, a rise and fall story, but mm. the guy definitely had a tremendous amount of influence, uh, in the comedy world, particularly, um, with black comics from, you know, the fifties all the way up until I would say the late nineties, early two thousands, um, were influenced by Red Fox for sure. And even some still today, but we will get into all of it. Uh, right after I let you know that uh, if you want to support the show, you can do it for free by subscribing on uh, any platform you get podcasts, whether it be Apple, Spotify, Google Play, uh, wherever you're listening to us right now. And if that happens to be on YouTube, make sure you subscribe, tap the notification bell. Uh, all that good stuff helps us, uh, you know, in the algorithm and everything helps boost those numbers, baby. And uh, if you'd like to throw a few bucks behind the program, um, then check out the Patreon. We do bonus episodes every month. Um, we just had a few go up, including uh, Opie and Anthony's Homeless Charlie incident, uh, Artie Lang's appearance on Joe Buck Live, his infamous uh, destruction of that program, uh, as well as many others we've done. Opie and Jim, uh, or Opie versus Jim, uh, Tucker Max, Donald Glover's Weirdo, Norm on The View, all kinds of uh, good stuff. We've been doing on the Patreon. So if you want to check out those episodes as well as get these a week early, um, then make sure you subscribe to the Patreon if you'd be so kind. And um, let's get into it. Uh, Red Fox, like I said, uh, lived a very interesting and um, <laughs> kind of lived the, uh, do you ever see the uh, ESPN 30 for 30? Um, I think it was called like broke or something like that. No. Uh, with all the athletes that lost all their money. Oh, no, that would suck to watch. Yeah, Red Fox is the kind of the comedy version of that. I hate to spoil it for people, uh, but <laughs> bad news is coming. Not this again. Red. Spoilers again, Mike. I know. I, I'm sorry, but <laughs> it's, it's out there if you look at it. Um, so uh, Red Fox was born in St. Louis, uh, grew up for the most part um, in Chicago, and uh, his father left when he was very young. That seems to be a common thing in the world of comedy. Um, I'd say less so now, like with the current crop of comedians, it's probably not quite as typical. But um, in the early days of comedy, it's almost everyone. They had either uh, no father or no mother or one was extremely abusive or never really there. Um, my favorite story being, uh, Jackie Gleason's father who threw out all the pictures of him before he left <laughs> so the family would have no memory of his existence. Uh, but in Red's case, the father skipped town and then, um, the mother bailed on him as well. The mother, um, dropped Red and his brother Fred off. Oh, by, by the way, I should mention, 
Uh, Red's real name is um, John Sanford, John McElroy Sanford, I think. Um, so that's where Sanford comes from. And his father's name is Fred Sanford, his brother being Fred Jr. Um, so when I first read that, I was like, that's odd. Is the character named after the dad that bailed on him? Um, but it was to honor his brother. That's where uh, Fred G. Sanford comes from. Um, so uh, Red and his brother grew up with, uh, for at least a few years, uh, with the grandmother because the the mom went to uh, Chicago, and then eventually uh, the grandmother of Red Fox said, "Enough of this! Raise your fucking kids!" and brought him back to the mother. <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of a uh, turbulent childhood. Um, he resented his mother for that. He said even at a very young age. He was aware, like, this isn't, this doesn't seem right. You know, there's no real reason she's not around. It just seems odd. <laughs> he knew that even as a, a young kid. She wants to and sleep so, in. Can you blame her? <laughs> well, uh, so then uh, he was a terrible student, I guess, didn't like school. And uh, so he ran away when he was young to pursue music. Um, and that's where our clips start today. He's talking about uh his days in Chicago, trying to be a performer. That's where I got the uh, idea that I wanted to be really in serious show business was in Chicago, in DeSalle High School. I was in hijinks, you know. Mm -hmm. And we in a group I had called the Bonbons. We were in the hijinks in 1939. <laughs> it was fabulous, you know. So everybody got a big write-up in the school paper mm -hmm. and my group did too. So I ran away from home in 1939 to go to New York to be on Major Bowles Amateur. And uh, I did. I made it and was in one second prize. The, the bonbons makes me think of uh, Frank Reynolds' Pecan Sandies. <laughs> <laughs> His group in uh, Always Sunny. Yeah. <laughs> it, was a, it was a much simpler time where even a kid from the streets is like, we'll call ourselves the uh, Tootsie Doo Six. <laughs> that was, that was uh, every pre-mob gang sounded like that too back then. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so... The uh, so that Mr. Uh, Major Bo's Amateur Hour that he's referring to was a radio show uh, that was apparently massive at the time, and I found it. I couldn't believe I there's a there's a few um, episodes of Major Bo's Amateur Hour on YouTube, and I found one with 67 views. So I was like, oh, I this can't be it. This can't be the one with Red Fox. And I scroll around, and sure enough, it was. It had his band, the Jump Swinging Six, or whatever the hell they were. Um, unfortunately, Red doesn't speak. He, the, uh, the guy talks to one of the other band members and criticizes the band name. So, uh, <laughs> I don't have that clip, but I just wanted to brag that I did manage to find it somehow against all odds. Don't you wonder how the clip from 1938 or whatever it was. Yeah. The person that uploaded it, where did they get it? <laughs> Great question. Yeah. <laughs> trading radio tapes. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, he goes to, uh, Major Bo's Amateur Hour, and to kind of uh, play off of the bonbons thing we were talking about, um, the the Jump Swinging Six, I think I'm getting that name right, um, they broke up when it came to the draft. Some people had to go to war. Um, Red, by the way, uh, dodged the draft, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> he said, uh, I think he said in um, his book, or the biography uh, written about him, um, it was, uh, the story was that uh, he ate 
soap because apparently it gives you heart palpitations. <laughs> so so uh, that, that's another one of my favorite things from these uh, old timers is the stories of them getting out of the draft. They're all great. Like, yeah. Lenny Bruce pretending he was gay. And I was going to say that's the most popular one. But, um, sure. I'm gay. Oh, gross. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. Right. Beat it. <laughs> You're not supposed to tell us that. Um, so, and uh, he, he did succeed a little bit in music. Um, he got a record with a very popular jazz label. Um, he released five singles, including, again, one was called like the Woogie Doogie Willie or something like that. <laughs> They're all such silly, whimsical names. <laughs> but uh, Red's life was not entirely whimsical. Is um is our next clip about one of his boyhood friends, um, Malcolm? Yes, yes, yeah. So he had a he had a very famous friend when uh, he was a kid, a guy that went on to greatness in many ways. When when you were when you were a youngster, Red, I never was. When I was born, I was forty one. <laughs> <laughs> In, 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 your young, in your younger days, you knew Malcolm, didn't you? Oh, yeah. I knew him quite well. I think I knew him better than anyone, you know, in his young days. How, how, how long did you know him? 18 years. We were friends and partners and whatever. What kind, what kind, of, what kind of business were you in? Were we in business? Uh, trying to escape. <laughs> <laughs> That's... That's almost like a Chappelle sketch with the voice of that guy. Asking, well, what kind of business were you in, sir? So, yeah, <laughs> we weren't exactly doing business. <laughs> they were uh, doing whatever they could get to get by uh, out, on the, out on the streets uh, back in the day. Uh, up to no good, as, as, uh, as they say. Um, but, yeah, they just kind of, uh, I guess, lost touch over the years. Uh, Red had no real interest in being part of the civil rights movement, at least not in the way that uh, Malcolm X did. Um, Red basically said, I contribute in my own way, which is in, in many ways true, as we'll get to. He just didn't feel the need to be, uh, you know, a social activist in the way that uh, Malcolm X was. He'd rather get his points across on stage. Make people um, laugh and say, see, even we can be funny. That's what he says. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I like that. That's like back in the day, it was like, well, you know, these Afro-Americans can't do comedy. It's like they're a much funnier race of people than us. <laughs> Let them on stage, idiots. <laughs> they're the funniest, some would say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, all right. Let me try and uh, regroup here, get back on track. So, yeah, Red, Red's all over the place as a kid. He's uh, trying to make it in the music biz. Um, never really took off. And in the comedy world, uh, he kind of started to realize he was funny. He hooks up with a gentleman named Slappy White, which <laughs> I I always thought that was just a Seinfeld reference. In uh, there's an episode of Seinfeld where uh, uh, Seinfeld's parents are trying to contact him at the hotel that he's not actually staying at. So they're like, they said there was no Jerry Seinfeld staying there, and he goes, "Well, I can't stay under my own name. I." Of course, I stay under the name Slappy White. <laughs> I always thought that was just a silly thing that, you know, Larry or Jerry liked. Um, but it turns out he was a real comic from back in the day, which is another. That's more of a you don't hear that name in comedy as much as that. It seems like, a, you know, a second baseman for the White Sox or something. <laughs> yeah, like 1938. Yeah. A number two hitter. Slappy White. <laughs> um, 
So they uh, partnered up and were a comedy duo. Uh, the comparison that I read was basically they were a black version of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. So, you know, you kind of had the uh, sleek, cool guy and the, you know, wacky, uh, silly, funny one. So they're kind of like uh, uh, bumping mics, but back then. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You could you could say that in a way. Yeah. Um, they, by the way, uh, I think they remained friends for many years. Slappy White was on uh, Sanford and Son, but uh, they did have beef for a long time. They toured uh, with a woman named Dinah Washington, who was also a, a childhood friend of uh, Red Foxes. And um, Slappy White ended up taking a gig with her without Red's knowledge, and there was a lot of resentment there. Um, People uh, taking advantage of Red and disrespecting him is a a very common theme throughout his life. I would say um, I don't think we've talked about a figure I've, like, felt this bad for or empathized with uh, since the Three Stooges episode. Yeah, because typically the Stooges still take the cake. Yeah, because typically you'll be like, well, I mean, like this is out of there. For him, it's like he couldn't have done anything different. Right. Yeah, well, so he becomes sort of, um, you know, a cult figure in this underground comedy world. Mm. Um, In uh, 1956, he released Laugh of the Party, which is a uh, his first of many party albums. He became known as king of the party album and uh this is interesting and you know historic for many reasons uh one being red fox is credited credited as the first guy that's ever done his act on stage recorded it and put it out like so it's the first time you're hearing on a record you know the audience laughing and things like that so people are like whoa what is it's revolutionary people like what is this i did not know that yes and um, also, uh, I called it a party album, which uh, I correctly assumed meant um, people would play it at parties. Party albums were, you know, records that uh, the adults would play when the kiddies have gone to bed. Maybe a little risque. <laughs> um, but the more, in my mind, the more interesting aspect of these party albums is um, so the <laughs> the way you would you know, buy a party album back in the day, they were not on shelves anywhere because Red Fox was so filthy for the time. um, And anyone else of that ilk, these other party albums, they were considered so dirty for the time that you couldn't put them on the shelf. People would be outraged. So it was essentially like a drug deal. You'd have to go into the record store and you'd have to, you know, look around, make sure no one was watching and say, Hey, uh, is uh is the fox in the hen house? And the guy would <laughs> slide you a paper bag. <laughs> I don't think he actually had to use code, but <laughs> but you would have to like be discreet about it, and they would put it in a like a paper bag so that no one saw you walking out with it. <laughs> Sneak out with a twelve inch record. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, these were crazy popular. This is Red's first success. Um, Laugh of the Party Volume One. Uh, sold like hotcakes so much so that between, I mean, this is unprecedented. Uh, Louis CK, eat your heart out. My friend, you think putting out one special a year is revolutionary. Uh, Red Fox between 1956 and 1958 put out 14 party albums. Oh my God. The guy, I I don't know that he talked in those two years without it being recorded. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, and I believe the number that I read was 50 in total, uh, 50 party albums he put out in uh, his entire career. So Jesus. It was uh, an insane amount of material Red Fox has put out there. And uh, it's interesting because I remember like my dad, when I was young, I remember my dad referring to Red Fox as like a hilarious, filthy guy. Um, but what I thought was most interesting about him was I assumed right out of the gate, it's fuck shit, piss cunt. He was, he evolved with the times where like in 1956, he's dirty for 1956. I think he referred to like a woman's ass, but it's not like a ton of cursing. So if you listen to it now, you're like, this is extremely mild. So it's funny if you go and listen to uh, Laugh of the Party, it's on YouTube if you want to go find it. Um, but it's funny to listen and be like, you had to, you know, knock three times and a guy slid you this record. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that's our next clip, right? Uh, no, uh, him talking about working blue. Oh, the well, next let's clip. that. Because that kind of applies as well. Yeah, yeah, it's him talking about it. You know, at the time I started, I was in uh, working in Baltimore at a club called Gambies, and uh, all dock workers, longshoremen, and uh, prostitutes, stuff like that, just frequent the place. And I was telling little Cinderella stories, I call them, you know, those nice cleanies, and uh, people didn't react to them. So the manager, Frank Reddish, he was one of them kind of soft spoken black dudes, but severe, you know, and he meant every word he said, when he, and he cursed all the time. So he said, why don't you tell some stuff these people want to hear, you know, something about working down the docks or something about nightlife. So I got some stories together for him that Saturday night, and that was just a sensation, you know. I mean, I went over so great, and he shot pistols and everything all up the ceiling. Yeah, so I said, well, this is it, you know. So ever since then, I, was, I just, uh, I, I didn't consider it dirty stories. I considered it stories, and it's human beings that uh, live and react to this kind of stuff, so let's give it to them. There's a lot of places in the ghettos where I can work, and I worked steady for a long time. Do you think uh, when Tom Myers lands a joke, they're shooting pistols into the ceiling in Baltimore? Different reason, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting, though, what I found interesting about that is, um, you, you know, and we've done it on this podcast many times, you always hear Lenny Bruce get the credit for breaking a lot of those barriers with language and, you know, literally getting arrested for things he was saying on stage. And, you know, I didn't find anything about red. I mean, he got arrested for uh, other things in his youth, but I didn't find anything about him getting re arrested for what he was saying on stage and listening to laugh of the party. My first thought was like, maybe he kind of walked that line yeah. where, you know, he was going right up to the edge, but not cracking it. Um, but then the other thing I kind of realized is he's playing black clubs. And I wonder if that at that time, police weren't even didn't even give a fuck you know or like no, if he wasn't at a place whereas in a white establishment they're like how dare you but in a black establishment they're like yeah be as filthy as you want <laughs> who cares that's what i was gonna say then they're, they're not getting ratted on is it's an interesting form of freedom in that way you know what i mean it's freedom mm -hmm. in its discrimination in a, in a bizarre <laughs> backwards way yeah. yeah yeah exactly uh the next same interview it's um him talking about his big break Oh yeah, so this is um, this is uh, long before, uh, not long before, but this is before Sanford and Son. This is uh, the first time he was brought on television. 
Did that, when your reputation started to grow and more white people began to come to see you, did that hinder the possibility of you becoming a star in the white community? Because oh, yeah. They, they all asked me to, not to do those kind of jokes. And I'd tell them, you know, to forget it. What was your first uh, break on television? Who gave it to you? Hugh Downs, I think I would say, gave me the first shot. I was on the Today Show on NBC. And uh, Hugh was the, uh, uh, you know, like the moderator. And uh, that night he was working Johnny Carson show because Johnny was on vacation again. And so he was, uh, after I was interviewed by Hugh on the day show, he said, look, I'll take you on the Tonight Show with me uh, tonight. And he did. And uh, I was, uh, I said, it was short of being a sensation as far as they were concerned because he never knew this guy who had sold five million albums and he never, a lot of people never saw him. So from then, Nick brought me back the following uh, week when Johnny came back. And that's when Johnny asked me about who was the funniest young black comedian coming up. And so I said, Flip Wilson. I said, you get Flip on and you'll be really thankful. You know, you'll never look back. And it was true. Flip got on the show and a week later he was hijacked to Cuba. And luck would have it, you know, you got a career going much faster than I had a chance. And, but uh, after he got a break, he gave me quite a few shots on his show. And we're good friends now. Uh, so it's interesting where Red is kind of talking about his first opportunity there. And in that, uh, once he got on with Carson, he, you know, goes, not goes out of his way, but he does what he can to promote Flip Wilson, who's a young black comedian at the time. Uh, whereas the black comedians that came before Red uh, didn't do anything for him. And now it might have been tougher for like uh, guys like Cosby and Dick Gregory um, to have gotten Red opportunities. But people in comedy in general, like it's a weird thing where Red has this trend until late in his life of uh, not getting the respect that he deserves. Because even there you hear. Uh, so for anyone that doesn't know, Hugh Downs was an early, he was essentially like the first Ed McMahon of the Tonight Show before Carson got there mm -hmm. and then wound up hosting the Today Show. Um, so Red's first ever television appearance, which a lot of people thought was bizarre because he's the king of the party record. Uh, his first television appearance was at, you know, seven o'clock in the morning and people were very nervous about that. But Red was always very smart. And uh, in another interview that I watched I saw Red kind of, uh, they were crediting him for, they were like, you've never been bleeped on television. Is that right? Like they, they never have to bleep you. And he's like, no, because I, I'm aware of where I am. If I'm on a show or I can curse, that's what I do. You know, if I'm on HBO, then I'll say fuck and shit all day. But if I'm on the today show, I'm aware it's seven o'clock in the morning. It's a different audience. So I, I clean it up. Like he was a true pro in that way. Yeah. I like uh, I like that he uh, when someone said who's the funniest um, black comedian coming up nowadays any comic was asked that question they'd be like me obviously <laughs> they'd just be selfish why did you say black or it would be a whole yeah, yeah you know yeah or he's like it's Flip Wilson <laughs> yeah. oh I got the answer but um so oh yeah the point of my story was uh the first guy that had him on the Tonight Show after that was Hugh Downs. Um, Hugh Downs is like, hey, you can do it at seven o'clock in the morning. Obviously, you can do it at eleven thirty at night. Um, so it's a weird thing where Johnny wasn't the first guy to have him on the Tonight Show, which I'm sure that happened for plenty of people. 
but it's just a line of disrespect where like Dick Gregory and Bill Cosby ended up guest hosting the tonight show. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm not sure if Dick Gregory did Cosby certainly did. Um, but uh, Red Fox never got that opportunity and he was always very bitter about that, particularly eventually being like the biggest star on NBC. So there's a lot of things and maybe part of it was cause he was dirty um, he eventually gets the label of difficult to work with, which we'll talk about. Um, but, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he never quite got the respect that he deserved, certainly in the early days. Anyways, uh, now we're at laugh of the party. Yeah. So, I mean, we'll play it. Like I said, the only other one that he does say, ah, he refers to women's asses, but, um, this is the closest I could find to something like, that currently might be considered, you know, raunchy, I guess. I don't know. It's just funny to listen to a 1950s album and be like, this is, this was filthy. <laughs> Thank you very much. I didn't see you going to warm up. You folks are really going to be all right. Uh, so I like to do some of the good stuff that I have. I'd like to do a couple of pieces that I had the pleasure of plugging in New York. <laughs> Pieces like Laura, <laughs> Marie, Margie. Those were good pieces. <laughs> yeah, I plugged all those pieces. Yeah, I was a song plugger back east. I plugged all them. I plugged uh, the old gray man, but she was used to be. <laughs> Yeah, I worked for the company a long time, and finally one day they got up enough nerve to ask me to plug Jim, and I quit. Um, so, yeah, like I said, I mean, he was talking about fucking there, obviously, and then makes kind of a gay joke at the end. So that would be considered, like, you know, I don't know, maybe the network might have a problem with it. <laughs> but, but, like, it doesn't seem crazy dirty. So that's all I'm saying is it's funny to... Uh, go back and listen to something that was considered like vulgar in the fifties. It's considered vulgar. And it sounds like, uh, like edits someone would make to a tonight show now. Exactly. Yeah. That seems like a guy cleaning it up. Right. <laughs> for like, a, like David tell cleaning it up for NBC or something. Right. Um, so, uh, by the way, in our timeline, um, red is already on his second marriage. Um, he got married when uh, he was very young turns out too young. Um, he was also, you know, pursuing an entertainment career and that, uh, you know, just got in the way of that. So, uh, I believe his first marriage only lasted about three years. Um, and then he was married a few years later. So that happens, but we'll talk about the success of that marriage a little while later, but I don't want to get too far ahead of myself here. Uh, this is him talking about Sanford and son. Yeah, so now um, he started to uh, make his way into the mainstream because he got a record on uh, Frank Sinatra's record label. So now, um, you know, now now he's in with the whites, which was a big deal in the 60s, baby. <laughs> uh, and I believe that record sold over a million copies. So now he's got some kind of mainstream appeal and he's in with Sinatra. Um, also in, I believe 1967, 
he's successful enough to be the first black business owner in Beverly Hills when he opened Red Fox's Comedy Club, which is where, um, you know, everyone associates Richard Pryor with uh, the comedy store. But Red Foxes in Beverly Hills is where Pryor actually started. Um, and in season two of Sanford and Son, uh, Red Fox brought on young writers, Richard Pryor and Paul Mooney. So he gave them uh, their start in many ways. Um, but first, let's hear about how he got Sanford and Son. The, the other thing I think that I've never heard you explain uh, how you actually came to get the part of Fred Sanford on Sanford and Son. I mean, we know this is one of the biggest hits in television of, of, of that era. How, how did it come your way in terms of the business? Well, Cleavon Little and I, we worked in Cotton Comes to Harlem, so he was out in Hollywood, so someone mentioned uh, something that they were going to do a series from England, you know, it was taken from Steptoe and Son. Right. So Cleavon mentioned to the producers that I had just played a junk man in Cotton Comes to Harlem. Uncle Bud, right. that was my role. But I didn't get no name. My name wasn't even on the screen credits in, in that movie because they never expected me to have a part as important as right. it was. But it was a major part of the movie. But the producers got in touch with me and I went down and, and did uh, Fred Sanford. But then it, it was called Steptoe and Son. So I said, well, my name is Sanford. So they, you can't use, they can't use the name Steptoe and Son. I said, well, Sanford and Steptoe had the same kind of sound, sound yeah. the rhythm. So it became Sanford and Son. And uh, Fred G. Sanford was my brother who passed about 20 years ago. Wow, he's a, what a So I used his name, Fred G. Sanford. Yeah. So at this time, uh, Amos and Andy was the only like, you know, quote, black show uh, that had been on television at that point. Uh, so networks were very nervous and uh, all in the family had just started on CBS. And so Norman Lear um, wanted to pitch this show to CBS and said, hey, I got another one for you. CBS said, we don't want a black show. <laughs> and. It wasn't, what's interesting about that, and credit to Norman Lear, which we'll get into why I don't think Norman Lear deserves credit for everything he gets necessarily, um, but credit to Norman Lear. So apparently, like um, Red said there, it was originally a British show called Steptone Son. Same with All in the Family. All in the Family was originally um, a British uh, TV show uh, adapted to, you know, uh, America. And... Um, originally, I believe they wanted like uh, an Italian family or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, when they came across Red Fox, they said, yeah, we'll just make it a black family. This is our guy. And so when CBS said, eh, I don't know, they stood by Red and said, no, no, we want to do it this way. And they went to NBC and uh, NBC was a little hesitant and they stuck to their guns, which is uh, you know, you got to give Norman credit um, because at that time it would be so much easier to be like, ah, fine. It's Italians. Then who gives a fuck? You know, <laughs> you're going to pay me still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, red obviously got the job despite the networks being afraid of, um, you know, having a black family on television and Sanford and son was also known as the Brady bunch killer because they went up against the Brady bunch Um I think they were both on Friday nights in the same time slot. And what it came to be was that um, the Brady Bunch represented, I, I guess, maybe what families would like to be, you know, rural, suburban, um, everything's nice and tidy. Even the fact that 
the, the both parents are divorced. <laughs> There's never a real marital strife. There's no issues with uh, the other parents. You never hear about where they are or anything. So it's kind of like this perfect, you know, white picket fence type of picture. Whereas Sanford and Son, um, you know, obviously was relatable to black families at that time, but even white families could look at it and say like, oh, these are real human beings that we would interact with. Whereas the Brady Bunch was a, a fantasy of a, an American family. It's so funny. It wasn't even that long ago. People were like, oh, they're real humans. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, because you forget, like, it's not that many years before where, like, you know, and even at this time, couples were sleeping in different beds on right. television. Right. And you couldn't say pregnant. You couldn't talk about pregnancy. Um, so it's a weird time. But, um, you know, uh, Red, Red, uh, Red Fox and uh, Norman Lear were integral in um, developing that process. Now, the reason I'm critical of Norman Lear is because, well, first of all, I champion our boy, Eric Monty. We still fight for justice for Eric Monty. That's right. If you go back to the Norman Lear episode. That's right. We're team Eric Monty all the way. Um, But what Eric Monty said about Norman Lear kind of rings true in my research of Sanford and Son, because you'll hear Norman Lear put this label of difficult on red and kind of take credit for some of the things that red was pushing for. So while I do think Norman Lear did a tremendous amount, tremendous amount for um, black people in the television business. uh, I also think he kind of stole valor a little bit. There's a little bit of him taking credit for things he didn't necessarily do. And also not giving people um, the opportunities that maybe he should. Also, I should say that I'm looking at, through the lens of 2023 where it's a hell of a lot easier for me to say, well, why don't you just let it red Fox do everything, <laughs> you know, right. whereas Norman Lear is dealing with network executives that are genuinely racist and he has to deal with all the politics of that. So I can't look at that. I'm busy fucking this 18 year old girl who wants a job. <laughs> right. Yes. They had a lot of irons in the fire back then. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So what's next? Uh, this is him uh, talking about writing contributions from our favorite guy who just asks about white people the whole time. <laughs> I, th- I think this is uh, John Barber, right? This is the same guy? Yeah. yeah this is John Barber. Who's, he comes off as a real dork, but Red seems to like him. <laughs> In Sanford and Son, do you make many contributions to the material that goes into the script? And then how would white producers and white directors and writers react to those contributions? Well, at first I was having a little difficulty making contributions, you know, because I'd make a suggestion and I'd run into a brick wall, but it's sort of, we hang a little looser now over on the set, you know, if I have some contributions, at least they're considered, you know, and I make quite a few changes in the script just to uh, show the truth, the true side, you know, different little sayings we have, like don't sit on the bed and stuff like that. Well, whites don't know that blacks are superstitious or whatever superstitious or whether it's just the way you're brought up, you don't sit on the bed, you don't put hats on the bed, you know, stand up in the house because they got other things that you make the house poor. You know, little things that we have traditions and things that uh, you have to realize and make the show honest. People will tune in to see themselves that way. And I think the big one that he pushed for that he doesn't mention there is um, they were, I don't know if they were the first, Um but they were the first to do it in, in the way that they did uh, with use of the N word on television. Um, because red at a certain point said like, 
Um, well, this the way you're writing this is not how black people would talk. This is not how we would refer to each other. And they would say, well, you wouldn't want me saying that on television, would you? And he's like, no, of course not. But I can say it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, he made, like, he pushed for, like he's saying there with, you know, um, different things on set and uh, behaviors. He would also do it with language where he's like, yeah, no, you, I'm, listen, Norman Lear. <laughs> I understand you're giving me a great opportunity, but you don't have any idea how black people talk to their families. I do. So the, these are the things I'm going to say. Um, now, because of stuff like that, uh, Red Fox was labeled as difficult. And I also heard where this is where I started to turn on Norman Lear, where um, in an interview, Norman Lear said that uh, one of the, you know, he was talking about Red being difficult and always credited him for being very funny, but did say he was difficult. And one of the examples he gave was he's like, Red, I mean, his dressing room didn't have a window, so he would make a big fuss. Even though I explained to him, we can't change the structure of the building to put in a window for you. And Red's point that, like, Norman never understood was like, no, no, no. My point is I'm on the NBC's number one show. At a certain point, they were number two in the country behind All in the Family. And... I'm in prime time. Meanwhile, Johnny Carson has an entire floor and you've put me in a closet. <laughs> That's the point that red was making that Norman Lear saw differently. And, you know, I wasn't there, but I, uh, that's where I was kind of like, eh, you know, maybe Norman's not the beacon of, um, uh, progression that he, he kind of steals valor for <laughs> just stealing from left and right. Damn straight, baby. And um, someone pointed out, someone that listened to the Norman Lear episode recently reached out to me. Um, I thought we did mention this, but maybe we didn't. Um, you know, the ideas for Samford and Son and All in the Family were both originally British shows. Now, that doesn't mean Norman Lear stole them. That's public. Not everyone, everyone knows that. It wasn't like, oops, <laughs> I guess it was a British show first. Everyone was aware of that. But it is noteworthy because you're talking about a guy who's considered such a trailblazer when both those shows were already happening in, um, uh, in uh, England. But the thing Norman Lear did do that no one else did is put both uh, Sanford and son and the Jeffersons on television. So that's definitely um, a feather in the guy's cap. Imagine go up to somebody and be like, just so you know, the office, it's not American. <laughs> but, well, the thing is like well okay but they're not they're not thieves it's a different show <laughs> yeah you right, know? right all i think all it is is basically the premise and that's about it right 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 um uh next we have that uh that video talking about the contract dispute the overdubbing guy voice yeah so these are um uh quotes that were in text i just figured it was better to have uh this gentleman read them and this is from a youtube channel called comedy hype news and they do a pretty good job. I think they cover specifically black comedians because every time we're doing an episode on a black comedian, I find clips from them and only when we cover a black comedian every <laughs> other time. So Nothing I'm from, assuming that's what the channel is, but uh, they do a good job with some of this stuff. They didn't talk about uh, Lucille Ball at all? <laughs> not that I found, anyways. <laughs> so uh, this is some of the stuff from Red's contract disputes. Oh, I will first throw in... That another thing that gave Red the label of difficult was, and to be fair, he was at times difficult, like, you know, wouldn't show up for rehearsals and things like that. 
Um, but with these contract disputes, uh, as you listen to them, just keep in mind um, that like there's episodes of Sanford and Son that Red isn't on because of these. Like he just walked out. He, he's a uh, you know we'll talk about a lot of the guys he influenced, but apparently he also influenced uh, NFL wide receivers because he was just like I'm not showing up until you pay me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah. he, uh, you know, he was kind of kind of one of the first guys in TV to do that. But Carol Connor did the same thing, and Carol Connor was the highest paid guy in television. And I don't remember hearing a lot of things uh, referring to him as difficult. So. Just keep that in mind as we talk about these uh, contract difficulties he dealt with. Klugman uh, did this, and wasn't he labeled difficult? Klugman, same thing. Missed episodes. Which, it's bizarre. I guess there's examples of it happening now, but it's weird to think, you know, like, I don't know, episodes of Everybody Loves Raymond where Ray Romano just isn't there. It's weird. (laughs) (laughs) Those those side quest episodes that everyone hates. Yeah, never fun, but... Uh, But this is about the uh, contract disputes. Yep. Oh. I asked for 25% of the show. They wanted to give me 25% of the producer's pie and said it would take five years before I could get a piece of the show. Well, they want to make me look like an idiot. They know I have a winner and I had one from the start. You see, when they gave me the show, they had about 25 million black folks to start off with as a viewing audience. The show has made millions. They wanted to sell the show to Columbia for $11 million. When the show is syndicated, I want to have a piece of it. I figured that if I had 25% of the show, I could make a million dollars a year for the next 10 or 12 years. Fox defended his demands by stating he's been in show business for 38 years and he still gets treated like a beginner. And that's the feeling of disrespect he always he always dealt with. And you can hear... It even more when he talks uh, later in life. I listened to a few of his interviews. And it's almost like at that point, he's kind of like, it's a foregone conclusion. He's just kind of over it. He's like, yeah, that's just how it was. Like, he never got the respect he felt like he de- deserved. Um, he was nominated for an Emmy. He lost to uh, Carol O'Connor. And like you said, the show was extremely successful for five seasons. Could have lasted a lot longer, but he walked away. Now, he's also criticized for, um, and this is again where, like, I'm not completely disregarding the fact that he may have been difficult to deal with um, because, like, he didn't tell his co-stars he was leaving. Um, he just cost these people jobs, you know, their livelihood right. because of his own disputes. So, yeah, there are things, and um, uh, his co-star, Damon Wilson, I believe his name is, I hope I'm getting that right. Um, He was like pissed about this. And he says, I've always respected red, but like he was, he was very pissed that uh, red didn't at least talk to him about this. So they could have maybe formulated a plan or something. Um, All these people were just out of jobs after five seasons when that show probably could have lasted a lot longer. Uh, However, in the thing you, we just heard there, you hear him being very, trying to be very smart. He wasn't always smart with his money, which we'll talk about. But um, in this instance, he was very smart and had the foresight to be like, no, syndication is where the money's at. I don't know if a lot of people in 1975 were saying that necessarily. Yeah, it wasn't really a thing yet. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, it, it was technically, but, you know, the Seinfeld deals haven't come to fruition yet. So that's a good foresight on Red's part to be like, hey, I could just coast 
if you give me the syndication money, that's which is what he was fighting for. Uh, it is Demond Wilson. Demond Wilson, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. Uh, this is uh, more excerpts from that, but uh, talking about network mistreatment. Yeah, and this is, I think, a little bit we'll hear about the dressing room thing I was talking about. According to Demond Wilson's memoir, Second Banana, the bittersweet memoir of the Sanford and Son years, he said, we were breaking ground, we were making history, but when we first came to NBC, we didn't even have dressing rooms, except on a shoot day. We were dressing in the men's room when our first show aired. Red and I were making history, and they tried to deal with us like we were third-class field hands. Yeah, and so, you know, like Norman Lear kind of tried to make it out like, oh, Red's being a prima donna, where it's like, well, I mean, you know, Norman, I I guess my point is, and this is, you know, uh, actually, Louis just had a great bit about this on his new special, where he talks about, uh, you know, slavery. And he's like, obviously now, like, slavery is wrong, but we say that never living in a time where you could own slaves. (laughs) He's like, you know, it's not like we're looking at our neighbors, bringing in our groceries. Like, ah, jeez, I wish I had a slave. (laughs) So, so to be fair, I'm not growing up in the time that Norman Lear is living in. So easy for me to judge, but there is a thing where Norman Lear in some ways was part of the problems. And you hear that with people like uh, Eric Monty, who have voiced their frustrations about uh, Norman Lear over the years and said that, um, and even in, in one interview, Norman gave, he, go, he gives red credit for bringing in like Richard Pryor and Paul Mooney. But the way he says it, he's like, you know, red was red. Was, sure. Red was at the forefront of bringing in black writers, but we were right behind him. We, we were very, that's, that was one of our goals. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but red pushed for them. Right. So, what are you really taking credit for? <laughs> um, next. Yeah, I got beef with Norman Lear is my point. Rightfully so. And he's still alive. So if he wants to come on this show and confront me anytime, <laughs> old man, that would actually be great. <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> His caretakers are black on the background of the zoom call. And you're like, I knew it. I think, he, I think he's 99 Norman Lear. So it's something like that. We're coming for you. You old bastard. Uh, next, next one, same, same thing. Last one. Uh, he's talking about leaving NBC. All right. I wasn't stolen. I floated, just floated away on a lake of bewilderment. I was just fed up. I never had a chance to do a special at NBC. I never got a chance to host a tonight show like everybody else in the business. I asked for a chance to produce, but they wouldn't let me. I wanted to grow, but they wouldn't let me. Don't you know many black youngsters watch me every week and know I should win something? They're not idiots. Those kids know Sanford or Red Fox hasn't won anything. A whole nation of black people keeps watching for a hero and none comes, man. It would take their minds off a whole lot of things if you give them some winners. We were the number one show at NBC for six years and you think that they would nominate us. Can you believe it? The whole thing ought to be investigated. I don't mean just Sanford and Son. What about the other black shows like The Jeffersons, That's My Mama, and Good Times? Never a mention of them at the Emmys. And, um, you know, the point that a lot of people make is, it's interesting because even I thought, um, I didn't realize Sanford and Son was on before The Jeffersons. Um, I feel like The Jeffersons gets more credit for being that kind of groundbreaking show. 
but it's like Sanford and Son depicting a poor black family or, you know, uh, lower middle class, whatever they were. Um, that opens the door for the Jeffersons and the Cosby show and Fresh Prince. These, you know, upper middle class families and people that can, you know, just present themselves the way any other show would. You needed Sanford and Son in order for, you know, the country to kind of accept that, um, you know, which is unfortunate, but that's just the way it was. Yep. And uh, just for the record, uh, this July, Norman Lee will be 101 years old. So come on, guy. He is alive, right? Yeah. I, I didn't get, I've been getting these wrong lately. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, he's alive. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, next we have, um, taxes. Well, this is where we get into some muddy waters here. <laughs> this is, this is where we start talking about the, uh, uh, you know, the kind of the, the downslide of, uh, old red because kids, you gotta pay your taxes. Taxation. So. Taxation is theft. I'm with red. I I'm a, hey, I'm with him too. And apparently, um, according to his, uh, biographer, they were, he was like, no, it was all to stick it to the man, which I'm like, I'm sure some of it was to keep his money, but <laughs> <laughs> what a character, Red Fox, that boy, he wouldn't pay his taxes. So the government came there one night when he, he all the people in the room just took everything, everything, went to his house, took everything. He took a ring off his finger. He took his shoes. They took it. And oh, sorry. I should have set this up better. Uh, this is John Witherspoon on uh, Rogan. Yep. And um, he, so at this point that John Witherspoon's talking about, uh, he still has Red Fox's comedy club that I was referring to earlier. I purposely didn't spoil it for you so we could hear this story. Took a ring off his finger. They took his shoes. They took him and left, oh. him, left him a chicken raw to cook in the oven. And so he, they uh, shut him down, his place he had. I think it was on La Cienica somewhere. It was in L.A., yeah. In L.A., yeah. Um, so he crying. Oh, God. he called Sammy Davis. He called Sammy called Frank Sinatra. And he told him, he took everything I own. I worked so hard to be who I am. I didn't do not just I owe the taxes. It ain't that bad. They, they, they took everything. So Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. and some other, other friends uh, went to his club and worked two or three weeks every night, two shows, sold them out to get enough money to pay, get his taxes and get his club back. <clears throat> he was so happy to everybody. He said, oh, my God, I want to thank you for doing what this for me. Oh, please, just take my, take my, my, my hug. Let me just hug you, hugging everybody. So they all went on their separate ways. Red Fox still didn't pay his fucking taxes. No! <laughs> they come back again with a lean on his ass. You son of a bitch. <laughs> come on, Red. <laughs> wow, that was the coolest story until right there at the end. I know. <laughs> Jesus, Red. And that's, you know, we all could have celebrated Frank. A white guy comes to the rescue, you know? Yeah. But, but no such luck. <laughs> and uh, they said Cosby also, I guess, tried to help out Red with the old. He was uh, like, no, th man. no, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know what you're up to, motherfucker. <laughs> Not in my club. <laughs> no, uh, Cosby. Cosby tried to help him out, I guess, as well. But yeah. That, and, you know, shout out to Sinatra because, uh, you, you know, the famous story is him uh, refusing to stay in hotels that wouldn't have Sammy Davis Jr. Right. So I feel like that. this is what I'm talking about is Norman Lear was no Frank Sinatra. How's that? That's the point I'm trying to make. Beautifully said. All right. 
Um, so, you know, to kind of uh, pile on to this tax situation, uh, Red was not only taken advantage of in Hollywood, he was also taken advantage of in his own home because they always said uh, he traveled with a true entourage. He always had, you know, kind of hangers on around people that he grew up with, family, things like that. And he was a real sucker. Uh, he always had people with their hand out. And he was a guy who, you know, um, it, it, people on the show, like I think Luanda Page, he came up in comedy with. And like I said, Slappy White, he met when he was very young. Um, so he kept people around that like he was friends with from a young age. And, you know, Luanda Page and, and uh, Slappy White didn't take advantage of him, but many others did, I guess. Uh, and that's a classic story. Like I said, uh, referring to that 30 for 30. That's a tale as old as time as people getting rich and wanted, wanted to do right by, you know, people they grew up with and uh, the people in their life don't have the sense to say, all right, that's enough. No, thank you. We don't need that much from you. Right. Um, now it wasn't all uh, generosity and sunshine and roses. Red also enjoyed the, the finer things. He, uh, <laughs> he had, he wore a lot of expensive jewelry. He had a lot of expensive cars. He had multiple homes which when you're making the kind of money Red was making at a time, that's all well and good. Uh, but if you don't pay your taxes, they scoop those things up too sweet. Um, what, what a buzzkill not paying taxes after that. I'd been yeah. so pissed if I was Frank Sinatra. What the fuck, man? <laughs> Wasted my time. Brutal. Um, as, and uh, also in 1975, before Sanford and Son was done, he gets his second divorced. Uh, divorce rather and uh, I imagine that cost a pretty penny because that was at the peak of his money making days mm. and um, at, at that time he was also uh, a real coxman <laughs> apparently it's, I don't know that you would necessarily guess it by looking at him or listening to him but Red Fox was a real smooth talker and a ladies man um, so uh, I guess uh, the second wife got sick of his infidelity said hit the bricks so marriage number two is done. And then within a couple of years, he's married again. <laughs> uh, so he's on his third marriage now. And Sinatra was like, what the fuck, dude? <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, I'm trying here. <laughs> I only have so many weeknights I can play. <laughs> I like the idea of every time Red Fox screws up, Frank Sinatra's just pissed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, so uh, they did a, a spinoff of Sanford and Son years later, just called Sanford, <laughs> and that bombed. Also, the Red Fox show didn't do very well, and I'm imagining Frank just shutting off his TV in anger. <laughs> like, <"God."> Red, come on! <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's next? Uh, this is um, one of his specials, uh, the musical open. <laughs> So this is this is just something I thought was weird. We're taking a diversion from the story aspect of Red Fox's life and just talking about his comedy for a little while. Mm -hmm. And the reason I wanted to play this is because I mentioned it uh, with Don Rickles a couple weeks ago. And I said, when I saw this, I was like, you know what? We got to pull this. Because I mentioned in the Don, Rickle, the Don Rickles documentary, uh, Mr. Warmth, they show a lot of clips of his stand-up. And he comes out in like with a song and dance number <laughs> and you're like, Don, is that Don Rickles? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. 
this one I thought was even weirder. Now it made a little more sense once I learned that Red had a background in music. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't make it any less bizarre to watch. <laughs> Sit back, relax, and get ready for a thrill. Let's get our hands together, bring to the stage the one and only Red Fox. It's a comedy special. Comes out smoking a butt, looks cool as hell. Chicago, 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 This sounds like Louis Armstrong. Mm. Chicago, Chicago, I'll show you around. Bet your bottom dollar you lose your blues in Chicago. Chicago. All right, you get the point before we get uh, demonetized for his great pipes there. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't that bizarre? Like, imagine... It was just a different oh. time, so I'm not shitting on Red here. I just find it so weird that this opened a comedy show. So I was going to say, like, back then they would do music, then they kind of started doing sketches almost to start comedy specials. Yes, at, at some yeah, there point. were intros for a long time. Finally, we've gotten to the point where we just get right to it. <laughs> they just start with the jokes now. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm just imagining like Chris Rock coming out like that. <laughs> well, Dice has done that. <sighs> yeah, has he? I, I believe so. He did like a sketch, like a sketch and a song and stuff. It was weird. Hmm. To start a spell, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, I'll find it. I'll figure out which one I'm talking about. <laughs> but it's also funny just because like then this is the material Red has after, <laughs> after his dance number. <laughs> People have said I was dirty because I've said shit. Fuck. Well, to me, fuck is not dirty. Fuck is only dirty when you don't wash up. <laughs> Now, believe that if there's any prudes here. I could say intercourse, but if you're doing it right, you fucking. (laughs) (laughs) Fellas, tell the truth. In your whole life, you never heard a girl say, oh, intercourse me. Intercourse me. (laughs) No, no, no. They don't say that. Girls are clever. Because they know if they say intercourse me, your worm might fall. <laughs> so they tell it like it is. Fuck me! Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hold it right there. Don't move it. <laughs> I also think saying your worm might fall for losing your erection is a term I'm definitely going to start using. Yeah, that's also uh, him going, am I on TV? I can't remember. <laughs> your worm might fall. <laughs> but... I'm also willing to accept that maybe it's um, some sort of dichotomy that's flying right over my head where he starts with this like sweet dance number <laughs> and then he just talks about fucking. I think his opening bit in that special is about like puking or something. I want to see like the, the guys that go there for the like, oh, his comedy is so funny. It's so dirty. And he starts like going, skip it. Yeah, guys in Vegas. Yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing, though. That's what showbiz was back in the day. You had a little True. mix of everything. True. Um, so yeah, you would play Vegas and make a, a shit ton of money, but, uh, for a long time, it all went right to the tax man, unfortunately, <laughs> but, uh, you hear that. So I think red, it, it, there's an interesting thing where like, sometimes I do say, uh, it's unfortunate. It's like when, um, uh, when there's a black quarterback in the, in the draft, they'll always be compared to, 
uh, Michael Vick, Cam Newton, who it's always a black quarterback that they're compared to. Mm -hmm. I always think that with comedians where like black comics are always compared to black comics, but in fairness, like the reason that happens so often with Red Fox and the people he influenced is because he was literally breaking down barriers for a lot of these people. Right. Um, so there's clear, like a clear line when you go from Red Fox to Richard Pryor to Eddie Murphy to Chris Rock. I think there's a clear, like each of those four guys was their generation's voice of black comedy pretty much. And Chappelle, obviously, but I think in a very different way. I don't think of Chappelle um, as quite as similar to those other four guys. Actually, I think Tracy Morgan is probably more similar to Red Fox than uh, Chappelle is. But uh, also, like, I mean, again, speaking of influences, the I think Bernie Mac, like, um, and the reason it made me think of it is because uh, I think Bernie Mac, just like his cadence and everything, he sounds a lot like Red Fox. And you could tell even the Bernie Mac show, I think there was influence from like Sanford and Son. Definitely. Um, but all it made me think of is if like right before the famous Def Jam, I ain't scared of you motherfuckers set. If Bernie was doing the, the old soft shoe to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he comes out doing the Charleston to an old say, standard. I was going to say he's tap dancing. That's his thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, next, we got uh, Red just talking about his marriages. Yeah. So, like I said, taxes, that's the, probably the worst of it, but it doesn't help that uh, money is flying out of his bank account every few years. <laughs> oh, enjoy. I will say marriage number two lasted 17 years, to be fair. It's a good length. Go ahead, enjoy. Have you messed up money? No, I don't think I messed it up, but I gave a lot of it away to people. You know what I mean? Um, just a soft touch. Um, How many times have you been married now? Let's see. Three. <laughs> and I shacked up a few times. <laughs> but hey, that's like You're real you're, you're a real romantic guy. No, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm just a good provider. That's why I mean uh, girls are attracted by me because I'm not I'm not stingy, you know, whatever I got goes. Just have it. Boom, bye. Enjoy life. That <laughs> way, Red. I like it. I like that. I like his attitude. Unfortunately, uh, his checking account was about 89 cents at this time, but, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I do like his attitude. And then, um, in 1991, he got into his fourth marriage, which, uh, ended much better than the first three. Uh, that is the year he died as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, and the, the, you know, sad thing is like, a woman marries 68 year old red Fox in 1991. Your first thought is probably like, Oh, there's a gold digger, but red had no money at that time. So she probably inherited nothing but debt. If anything, maybe the rights to his name or something. Maybe, maybe I'm not sure, but we'll, we'll get more into that in a moment. Um, we have two clips left, but uh, this is... Oh, yeah, so we're getting right to it, basically. So um, I mentioned Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy and the clear influence there. Um, and Eddie Murphy was great at... Uh, he, he was the next generation's Frank Sinatra <laughs> in this regard. He said, hey, Red Fox was a huge influence to me. I want to help this guy. Um, so he did everything he could to like, kind of find parts for Red Fox. So he makes the movie Harlem Nights... Um, with it was a big deal because it had the three generations of 
you know, influential black voices with Red Fox, Richard Pryor and Eddie Murphy all being in the same movie. Um, and uh, Della Reese was also in that movie, uh, which led to Eddie Murphy having another idea as to how to make Red a few bucks. This particular time, she got caught on this side. And so sensibly, she started handing out the props where she was. And Red says, where's my orange? And I said, she's on the way with the orange. You better bring the orange. I said, she's on the way with the orange. She's coming with the orange. What is her name? I said, Ronita. He said, renews it, bring me the uh-huh orange, okay? I said, her name is not renews it. Her name is Renita. He said, Renita, renews it, what the difference does it make? And I said, chartreuse, salmon, pink, yellow, what difference does it make when your name is red? And we started this conversation back and forth. Now, Richard Pryor is sitting down at the end of the table, <laughs> and he's signifying. He said, Red, you let a woman talk to you like that? What kind of man are you let a woman talk to you like that? <laughs> well, now Red raises up and he says something else, you know. And so I, I'm right on him. I say, I don't remember what, but I said something else. Now Red, uh, Richard says, Dale, he ain't your man. Don't let him talk to you like that. He ain't giving you no money. Don't let him talk to you like that. <laughs> Red, rather. And we have this. Everybody standing around is cracking up because this is all extemporaneous <laughs> and we're going at each other, going back and forth. We're friends so we can do this with each other. So um, um, Eddie just slides down the wall. He's just sitting on the floor laughing. He said, let's take a lunch break. And he went in the trailer and he wrote the royal family. Yeah, so uh, the royal family. Well, so first I should say, I know I mentioned it a bit, but um, Red, Red Fox left Sanford and Son to go to ABC where they gave him a variety show that flopped. Uh, the Red Fox show wasn't particularly successful. Um, Sanford that I mentioned, which was like, a, I guess, a spinoff of uh, Sanford and Son. No, no luck. And so literally, uh, uh, actually, just before we uh, started here, I was watching an interview where um, someone asked Red, uh, so, so Red, are you done with television? And he just goes, I, mean, I think television's done with me. I don't really have a choice in the matter. <laughs> but... Uh, Eddie Murphy has enough juice at this time. I mean, he's like, you know, the biggest thing in comedy, right? At, at, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And, uh, he says, I've, I've got it. Like these two would be the perfect, um, like, you know, just the generation I grew up in. I thought of like Frank and Marie Barone, like they're a perfect, just old married couple, uh, Della Reese and, and, um, Red Fox. And in Harlem nights, I looked up, uh, I haven't seen the full movie. Uh, but I just looked up a couple of scenes to see if there's anything worth playing on here. And there is one scene where they're telling Eddie Murphy to like go apologize to Della Reese for something. And she's playing uh, Red Fox's wife. And they're like, you know, come on, just talk, just go talk to her. And meanwhile, Della Reese is yelling something at Red Fox. And Red Fox just responds, shut up, you fat bitch. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that would make a perfect television show. <laughs> that was an ad lib too, probably. <laughs> so, so Eddie Murphy uh, had the idea to put this on TV. Um, 
I think uh, the first version was a different name. Uh, oh, the, uh, he wanted to call it Chest Pains as like a, kind of an homage of, uh, um, you know, the Fred Sanford character always, you know, almost having a heart attack. I'm coming, um, Elizabeth. Yeah. But Growing Pains was also on TV. So they went with uh, the royal family. And then um, during shooting of that program, unfortunately, this happened. So Red was dealing um, with a producer. Della Reese is telling this story as well. Um, she's a very good storyteller. Mm. <laughs> I enjoyed listening to her. Me too. But um, she's telling the story. There's a producer. On, and so Red was labeled as difficult, like I said. And so in order to um, try and work around that, he had like handlers on this show. They would, you know, sick. They had, they had producers that were basically trying to like monitor him and they would go so far as to like trying to tell him what was funny and things like that. And so that's uh, where this story picks up. Entertainment Tonight came to interview Red. And so we're rehearsing a scene and all Red had to do was walk across the back of my chair. We're not shooting, we're rehearsing a scene. And uh, of course they sent someone to walk back. And this man says, where is Red? And I said, he's having an interview with Entertainment Tonight. I said, but he doesn't have any lines here. He just has to walk. If he's supposed to walk past, he should be in here to walk past. So he goes in there, stops their shooting, and brings Red out. And when Red gets out there and finds out all he has to do is walk across the back of this that anybody could have done, he becomes livid. And he falls. Well, he was always doing pratfalls. And I thought that's what he did. Everybody thought that's what he did. And he was laying on the floor and I leaned down to him and I put my hands on him. He said, get my wife, get my wife, get my wife, get my wife. I said, somebody get paramedics and somebody go get Mrs. Fox. And they went and got her and they pronounced him dead. And they put him in the ambulance and we all got in our cars and followed him to the hospital. And he came back and stayed for four and a half hours. Now we're all sitting in the lobby of the hospital and uh, the doctor comes out and says, uh, Mrs. Fox, we've done all that we can do and your husband is gone. And standing uh, this close, were two of the producers. And they said, what are we gonna do with this script? This script was written for Red and Della. So who are we gonna get to? Who's gonna replace? She's sitting right here. They just told her that her husband was dead. And I- Fucking vultures. Crazy. Oh shit. I went absolutely insane. Jesus. So yeah, uh, first of all, crazy that the guy who literally his catchphrase is clutching his chest and yelling to the skies. <laughs> That's how he dies. Like the, the sad irony of that, like people laughing <laughs> as he's like, come on guys. I know that's my thing, but please. Uh, did anyone put a bullet in that producer's head? That's, I mean, that's the, the saddest part is that like, I mean, that, that seems almost like if you put that in a script, 
you'd be like, okay, no one's going to literally do it in the lobby of the hospital. You know, right. it would be a criticized scene in a movie because it would be so absurd. Uh, not that, that for that too. But I mean, for interrupting that, making him furious just so he could walk by. Like, uh. Oh, well that, yeah, that I, I didn't even think of that part. Yeah. So like um, now listen, I don't know enough about health to say it was all, I'm sure he was not in the, the best health or anything. Um, but yeah, very, a very sad story and a tragic end to a guy who had such a great career and influenced, um, I mean, so much of, of, uh, comedy today, you know, like literally, I think if you watch Def Jam, I, you could easily argue that Def Jam itself, (laughs) like with all the comedians that go on that show, uh, was influenced by Red Fox. Like he kind of created a. A genre of comedy in that way, you know, for sure. Um, I'm going to find, like, oh, I'm going to find several, that? I'm going to find several videos of Delarice talking later and just listen to him. She's a great storyteller. We used her in one other episode. Um, I forget which one. As do I, maybe Norman Lear. I can't remember, but yeah, we used her one other time. That might've actually been it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, very sad. Uh, rest in peace, Red Fox. I found this very interesting. I, and uh, I was excited for this episode, and I think it. I'm I'm happy with how it came out. I think. Uh, I hope to hear your guys' thoughts. I hope you enjoyed it and found it interesting as well. Um, so if you didn't know about uh, Red Fox, you know, pay pay homage to him. Go listen to a Red Fox album or watch Sanford and Son or something because have, uh, have a heart. I was underappreciated in this time. <laughs> have a heart attack and call for Elizabeth today. <laughs> yeah. Uh, pour one out for old red. Um, uh, anything else we missed? You think? No, we haven't done a coaching tree in a while, but this would probably be like one of the bigger ones we've had. Well, I, I mean, I named a bunch, but yeah. like I said, uh, the, the two, if you're just talking style, the two that immediately come to mind would be Bernie Mac and Tracy Morgan. I think. Yeah. Almost. Yep. They almost seem like they're, you know, children of red fox like the cadence and there's the, the way they talk and everything i even think chris rock's cadence the same the pitches aren't the same but the cadence is kind of similar chris rock you almost think that more because the voice though the voice is very, like uh, he's got that way of talking right 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 um but yeah <laughs> we didn't I, we, I didn't bring this up when we were just talking but that argument and then priors just at the end of the table like just that alone the visual is so funny that's just the idea of prior egging them on. Yeah. That's Come just- on, Red. That's not your wife. You don't have to answer to her. <laughs> don't be a pussy, Red. <laughs> That's so funny. So, uh, yeah, just the three of them on set must have been a bit. But the other, I mean, again, talking influence, like, um, if you go back and watch Red Fox stuff, like I said, uh, you know, now Tracy Morgan's much dirtier than Red Fox. Yeah. Uh, Big J. Okerson's much dirtier than Red Fox. Jim Norton's dirtier than Red Fox. But like without Red Fox, those barriers aren't broken down. So I would say uh, though, for the time, Red Fox exactly. would be dirtier than those guys. Yes, yeah, he was dirtier in his time than most other people. Yeah, yeah it's like Whereas great, it's, like it's, great it's commonplace now. Yeah, it's like grading on a curve. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So shout out Red Fox, and uh, if you like this episode and wish you heard it a week earlier, uh, well, you get all the Why You Laughing episodes a week early on Patreon. And you also get bonus episodes. So uh, if you want to subscribe to the old page and uh, support the program, please do that. We're working on getting our way up to 700 patrons. So keep those numbers are coming, baby. And um, 
if you just rather support the show for free, I get it. It's a tough economy out there. So uh, just go to Apple, Spotify, YouTube, support the show that way. Uh, boost our numbers in the algorithm, all of that. Tell a friend. Uh, that's probably the best way to spread the show is, you know, word of mouth. So share the podcast. Tell people who might like it that there's a, a history comedy podcast out there that uh, they should start. And uh, also, if you want to support Craig and everything he does, um, if you've listened to this program and you like our shock jock episodes, then go listen to a very good show. <laughs> Uh, they do a lot of wacky things over there on Very Good Show. Sure do. If you want to talk dirty, if you want to talk Red Fox influence, I mean, these boys get dirty. <laughs> so go to uh, verygoodshow.org and support their program. Yeah, start off. Listen to us for free if you like it. Maybe go to the cheap Patreon level. We'll appreciate you. Beautiful. And uh, we will talk to you guys next time on Why You Laugh. Zip it up and zip it out. Yeah.